I took this picture back in November 2005. At the time, this was you know in the very very early days of Dig, and uh, at the time I was living in Toronto and coming down to San Francisco about once a month to work with Kevin and uh, the, the small team at the time that was was building Dig. I remember. I came down, and uh, one of the, the early investors in Dig had some, some really nice seats at the, the ballpark in San Francisco, the AT&T park. And uh, Kevin and I went down there, and you know, earlier in the day, we had been working on new Dig features, and then we went, went to the ballpark later in the day. And I can actually remember sitting there in the crowd, and this was the last game of the season. The, the Giants hadn't done that well, but their huge crowd had showed up to, to see their last game. And so we're sitting there, and I was looking out over the crowd, and I was thinking, like, that's, that's a lot of fucking people. That's a big crowd. And we looked up, because, of course, uh, the ballpark in San Francisco, being San Francisco, has wireless internet. We looked up how big the park was on, on Wikipedia, and the, it seats 41,500 people. And just earlier in the day, Kevin and I had been talking about the upcoming section of DIG and, and how much participation there was there. And there were more than that number of people participating on DIG already at that stage of the site. And I was thinking, like, in the real world, over 40,000 people is huge. Like, that's a massive number of people. That's a, a huge crowd. And when the ballpark has a game, there's, you know, it disrupts that entire part of the city. And they play, you know, a couple of times a week. There's traffic jams all the way up 3rd Street. There's, there's uh, you know, the police have to, you know, come out and patrol the streets and make sure that, you know, the opposing fans don't get in fights with the San Francisco fans, especially when they're playing the Dodgers. And there's this whole business around it. There's, there's places that do parking just specifically for game day. There's places that sell souvenirs. They're only open on game day. There's, there's pubs and, and bars that are, you know, cater specifically towards the baseball fans who come out to the, you know, the stadium, let alone the infrastructure just for the stadium itself, which is this gorgeous, huge structure right on the water. And if you're ever in San Francisco, you should really go to a game. It's a, it's a beautiful experience. And I was thinking that that's a lot, you know, a lot like what we're doing. We're building this infrastructure. We're building this whole system. And, you know, there's other people on the side, like those vendors who are building into your APIs, that kind of thing. And you, what you're doing is building this whole infrastructure to allow these people to interact with each other socially around something. So people don't come to the baseball game just to watch the baseball. They're coming to interact with all the other fans. They're, they're there to heckle the, the other squad, right? And this is a lot like what we're doing with something like Dig. So I'm going to talk today a little bit about kind of what we do at, at that kind of scale of social interaction that allows people to have good connections with each other. And I, I was looking through kind of the, the points I wanted to make, and they, they kind of fall into three categories of, of issues that I, f I found that we've been focusing on in the last year or so, on, on both Dig and on Pounce as well. And, and you see they're kind of general trends of, you know, kind of challenges that a lot of social sites are facing. So the first challenge is getting people to sign up for your site. So, you know, increasing the level of participation. The, the second challenge is, once those people are already participating on the site, how do you encourage them to do positive behaviors instead of, you know, negative behaviors or, or just solo things? You want them to be, you know, being social on your site. And then the third thing, particularly from a design perspective, is how do you build a user interface that works for a very, very hetero heterogeneous community? So there's lots of different types of people on your website, 
and they have different levels of experience, they have different interests, they have you know, different things that they think are important, and you want to build an interface that can adapt to all those things. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is how do we encourage people to participate? And this is particularly important on something like DIG, which is you know, all about the zeitgeist. The more people we have participating on the site, the better idea we have of what's actually popular on the internet. And one of the issues we have, and not to take the baseball metaphor you know, terribly too far, but we have a lot of people who watch on television at home. So of, you know, we have something like 3 million registered users on DIG, but every month we have 30 million people who visit the site. And so that's a huge number of participants, but at the same time there's this even greater pool of people who are watching it from home. They're not actually participating. They're not, the, the, our baseball team can't hear them cheering. And so we want to figure out ways that we can actually involve them in the site. So one of the ways that we're looking at doing this is to increase the benefit for people. The way we do it currently, we use phrases like discover the best of the web. We say things like promote stuff that's important to you. Those things are very altruistic. It's saying, hey, you know, you're part of a community, do stuff that's nice for the community. And that goes so far. There are, there are certain people who think that way. They're like, you know, I, I, I really believe in this thing. I really want to support it. I want to be part of the, you know, part of what's going on here. But you can really tap into people if you tap into their self-interest. And you can say, if you do X, you'll get Y. And y's, if Y is tangible enough for them, we can get them to participate more. So this is something that we're, you know, kind of a philosophy that we're taking towards building new features. So one of the first steps that we've taken recently in this regard is uh, something we call the recommendation engine on DIG, which is currently uh, in the upcoming section, so stories that haven't been uh, promoted to the homepage yet. So, so the basic idea of this feature is it's taking your activity on the website, so you're digging, and soon it'll be also your burying, your favorites, this kind of thing, and it's looking at that, and then it's finding other people who do similar activities to you, and then it's looking at what those similar people do and saying, hey, you might want to check out the stuff they do because they're similar to you. The great thing with this is it does, the more you tell our system, the better the system can be at, at delivering content to you. So in the upcoming section of the site, we get something like 16,000 submissions at a time sitting in that pool. So the, the upcoming section cycles, uh, you know, a story only sits in there for about 24 hours. And to take that 16,000 and boil it down to the 15 or 30 stories that you'll really be into is quite a challenge. And the more you tell us, the better we can do about it. So that's a nice, you know, genuine self-interested benefit to the user because we can say on the right, you'll see I actually participate in the website a lot, but up here on the right it says you're doing great, you know, keep digging. But if I dug less items, if I'd only had three things here, it'll tell me go dig another 15 items and we'll, you know, be able to increase the, the accuracy of these, you know, recommendations significantly. And so we're, you know, encouraging people to participate in the site. The people are getting better stuff, and so they'll participate in the site even more, and that, that cycles really well. And it also recommends people to you, and so it's encur encouraging you to friend up people who happen to be similar to you. And so after we implemented this feature, we saw a, a significant increase in the amount of participation in the upcoming section, which is really valuable to us because it lets us have better vetted stories reaching the homepage. And it also saw a significant increase in the number of friends being added because people were discovering people they didn't really know, but they, they shared interests. So they're discovering new people, which is a, a great feature. 
So another thing that we're trying to do to you know, increase the, the level of participation on the site is reducing the barrier to entry, so making it easier to register on the site and, and get going. And we're doing this in two ways. One, we're going to be implementing this feature that basically when you dig something, you're going to get a, a small dialog box that lets you register right there. Currently, the site brings up a, a silly little message that tells you to, you know, you can't do that. You actually need to join or register. And, you know, the incentive to keep going, you're not sure what registration means, how many fields it is. This significantly reduces that. But the even more important thing here is we're working with um, Facebook on implementing Facebook Connect, and we're also going to be implementing OpenID at the same time. And so if you've got a Facebook account and you've never registered on Dig before, you'll be able to click the Facebook link. You'll, if you're logged into Facebook, you'll automatically uh, have the opportunity to import all of your friends. You can skip almost all of the registration steps. You don't have to tell us your name, your location, any of that stuff, because we, we can all import it directly from Facebook. And you can choose which stuff to show and which stuff not to show. And you're in. So the, the big thing we can avoid there, too, is the email confirmation step, which is a, a huge pain in the ass for us, and we lose a lot of our people on that, that stage of registration. So this will be a big benefit to us. The other thing that we're, we might be doing in the future, and I've talked a lot about this recently, and this ties into some of the stuff uh, Josh Porter was talking about earlier today, is allowing people to dip a toe in the water before they really get going. Um, currently on the site, you can't do any of the active stuff until you've actually registered an account but you're not sure why you should register your account until you've done some of the active stuff and see the benefits, right? So we want people to be able to get going quickly and get invested quickly. I think for an example for a site that does this extremely well is Genie, which is a, a gene, genealogy website. Um, I think this is probably the best of the best homepage of a Web 2.0 website. It's, it's totally brilliant. So they, they do a few things here. I think we can learn some lessons for this on, on how we do dig and, and possibly pounce. Um, is what they do is, on one hand, similar to many sites, they tell, what, tell you what they do. So that's fine. They can you know, write a bit of a description about what they are and, and why you should be interested, you know, what you might use Genie to do. But that only goes so far. The other thing they do, which is awesome, is they show you what it is. You can see that it's a family tree, and if I enter my information there, I'll be starting a family tree. And so, you know, they not only tell us, but they show us, and then the, the truly brilliant part is, is they only ask you for three things. You know, they ask you for your, your name, your email address, and your gender, and then you start a tree, which is, it's super easy, but once you get to the next step, you feel like you've actually invested something in that website. You know, you get a tangible thing, like I just did that, I started my family tree, and I've got the opportunity to either keep filling out my family tree, to email it to you know, one of my relatives, or then to register an account and, and get the full experience and save it. So it's, it's really great that you get this, this really easy entry, they get your email address right off the front, and then they give you that strong incentive to register because you know, you've already done something, now you want to keep it. I think on Dig, we're definitely thinking about going towards the model where I'd be able to dig a few stories and even from there, I could go to the recommendation engine and it could say, here's some other content you might be into because we only need a few stories to be able to start recommending content to you. And then, you know, if I'm enjoying this and everything's going well, we'll have, you know, a feature in the UI that says, you know, want to convert this account to a, a real account and go through the, the new streamlined registration process and hopefully we significantly increase, you know, the level of people who are participating. So the second challenge is 
Now I've got you know, way more people actually participating on the website, which is great, but how do I encourage them once they're there to do positive things? Um, you know, I don't want them you know, going off and you know, joining, you know, there, are, there are infamous like the Barry Brigade on DIG, which is, I'm not sure it really exists, but you know, it's, it's something people fear and you know, writing negative comments about people, flaming people, we wanna avoid those kinds of behaviors and something as big as DIG that has you know, so much participation, this is something we struggle with all the time. One way which is obvious, I guess, and we all do it already, is, is having personal profiles. Um, so having a profile and we attach you know, all of your activity to that profile gives you a sense of trust that you, you know who the other person is. Any action that happens on the site, you know who did it. Even if it's not a real person, it's amazing how much you know, even a nickname, once you start recognizing it, you can build up that trust. And this is an example, this is a, the Silver Orange Intranet. This is something I worked on way back in, this is a, a screenshot from, two, uh, well, screenshot from recently, but this UI was built in, in 2000. I remember this was my first experience designing something that had avatars in it, and the immediate emotional reaction to that was so strong. You know, what we, the original UI for this didn't have any images with it. It was just kind of like emails, right? And the minute we added those images, suddenly it felt like a conversation. I know this is kind of like anecdotal, but the emotional reaction to that was so strong. It's so positive. And you, it's no wonder that, you know, Twitter and Pounce and, you know, Dig and all these sites use, now use avatars all the time, of course. Um, and... I think Last.fm has a great example of a user profile and something I've used as some inspiration. Um, so nice work, Hannah, wherever you are. I think Last.fm's designer's here. Um, so some, something they do really well here, this is uh, the profile for Andrew Wilkinson, a friend of mine from Canada, is they mix up a combination of, of stuff that the user has said about themselves as well as stuff that they've done as well as stuff that Last.fm can infer about the person. So First of all, they've got some information at the top that the user has entered themselves. They've told us what, what his name is, where he lives. Um, he's entered uh, a link to his Tumble log, um, which is you know, cool, because now I can go learn more about him. And now what they've done is they're actually making a connection between me and him. So even if I wasn't his friend, it's going to tell me if we have similar musical tastes or not, which you know, in, in a music scenario gives me a sense of trust. Is this, does this person have good musical taste? You know, if he listens to NSYNC, I hope we don't line up. And then what they also do here is they list stuff he's listened to recently. So this is the really important thing with both these last two features is Andrew doesn't need to come to Last.fm to keep this up to date. If I come to his profile today and he's happened to be scrobbling his, his activity, it's going to be there right on his profile. So his profile is perfectly up to date because... We can't expect people to be going to, you know, all the social networks you belong to. We can't expect you to be going to each of them and updating your profile all the time. So I really like, and this is something I've, I've done on Dig quite a bit. This is my user profile on Dig, which is, as you can see, is, is similar in some ways. That there's some information that I've entered, some information that, that's inferred. Um, and I like this, that I don't need to think about my user profile to keep it interesting, keep it up to date. Uh, we do something here where we list uh, your recent activity, I don't think my laser's working. Um, but the recent activity in the bottom left, as well as your favorites. So your favorites are something you didn't explicitly have to do in your profile, but by listing as a favorite, you can kind of pin it to the top of your profile and draw more attention to it and say, this, this story was actually special to me. 
I think that's something, if we, if we do a next revision of the, the profile pages, we could do a lot better even. Something on, on pounce we do in your user profiles, and I think Tontech, who's speaking after me, is gonna talk a little bit about this, is we let you link to your other profiles very explicitly. And this is great because I, you know, why should I have to upload my images, you know, more images of me to another website when I've already got a Flickr account? You know, why would I type in which albums I like? You know, this is what you have to do on Facebook, for instance. Why would I type in what albums I like when LastFM already knows? So this works really well. I can, I, I know I've gone to a few people when they friend me and I go to look who they are. And I want to go see pictures of them. I click on their, face, on their Flickr link. I can see a whole bunch of pictures of them, you know, in an interface that actually is optimized to look at images. It's great. I think another way that I've been thinking about a lot about on Dig every time we build a new feature, and this is also, also something I focus on a lot on Pounds, is focusing in on tension points and there's very small things. If, if you know that a piece of your site, you know, is a real potential for conflict, you can think, you know, just little tweaks to the copy, writing something like, like during the submission process on Dig, I know people get frustrated that they, you know, we're, we're going off and we're, we're polling the other website and, and spidering for images and, you know, doing dupe detection, that kind of thing. But just a little bit of fun copy in there, you know, don't be flippant, but you know, just some casual copy, like, oh, we're just grabbing that information, hang on a sec while we get it, stuff like that, can really, you know, take out a lot of the, the potential animosities, and particularly intention areas where, where people are interacting with each other, like, uh, like in the submission process, there's, there's little pieces in there that indicate, you know, you're writing a description for your piece, think about how other people will be reading this. Um, you know, in the comments, we could probably do better about, you know, messaging you know, about not flaming people and, you know, look back at your comments to see how people, you know, voted it up and down to see if you're actually writing stuff, you know, other people like or if you're being a jerk, you'll know. Um, I think a site that does this extremely well, I, I really like this design. I'm not sure if who, who at Satisfaction did this, but this is um, from Get Satisfaction, which is a, a fantastic, um, how would you describe it? It's kind of a, a self-help um, help website. So if you've got a problem with an Apple product, you can go on there and other Apple fans will help you fix your Apple product, that kind of thing. And we use this for, um, for our support on Pounds. It's superb. So what, what's going on here is you've often got a really, really negative thing going on. Is the person's coming here, you know, there's a, good re there's a good likelihood that the reason they're here is because something's broken and they're not happy with it. So, you know, people post here on Pounce if we made a coding mistake and their user profile's not working. They'll come on here and say, my user profile, you know, X, Y, Z is broken. What the hell? You guys should really fix that. But what they've done here is at the bottom, they've got these little things. How does this make you feel? Well, it makes you think, okay, how am I coming across? How do I want to appear to other people when I'm communicating this? Because I'm sure all of you guys have experience with relationship-ending IM or email conversations. People are horrible at communicating online, and particularly in a forum like this. So some very smart person at Satisfaction had the idea, you should think about how you're feeling and express it explicitly. I, Awesome. People write on there and they'll, they'll use the, the frowny one and they'll say, I'm really, 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 really frustrated. And, you know, that's cool. I know you're really frustrated. That's, it's good to know. And then when I respond, I'm like, oh, it was really an easy fix. No problem. I'm really sorry you had to deal with that. And I respond with, like, the guy with the little tongue out. And they respond, they're like, oh, thanks a lot. And they have the little smiley face. And this is 
dorky as hell, right? <laughs> but it really works. And I, 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 I thought about how we can implement more of this stuff into projects we're doing. I think it, it's, it's stupid simple. You can implement that in you know, an hour. But you know, the idea itself is so strong. The other thing you want to do is avoid negative competition. You definitely don't want to make this puppy cry, because he is adorable. Um, so this is something we struggled with on Dig for a while. We had um, a top users list. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. was a bit of a, a scandal on the website about this, because what we had done was kind of dumb. We had set up a system that listed the users numerically, you know, who was in the top 100, who was in the top 500, but it was a stupid, simple figure. It was how many stories did you get to the homepage, ever. And so the problem with this, I think is probably obvious, is that, you know, once you got ahead on this game, you could really stay out ahead because, you know, if I join the site tomorrow and somebody would be on it for two years and has 600 homepage stories, well, that's, you know, quite the mountain to climb to catch up to them. It's just about impossible. And so, you know, new users were frustrated because they had no chance of getting on this list. The existing users were happy with this because they, you know, drew a lot of attention to themselves. But to climb the list, they were starting to resort to kind of negative behaviors we weren't very happy with, like submitting duplicate cont content and, you know, bypassing our duplicate filter, which isn't, you know, terribly hard to do. And, you know, by doing that, they could steal stories from new, new users and use their, you know, their friends network to promote that version of the story instead of the original. That's just really frustrating. But the biggest problem with this is that we designed a system that encouraged that kind of behavior. And so at the beginning of the website, that was great because all these guys joined at a similar time. And for the first year or so, this was a really, you know, a boon to the website. There was a, you know, friendly competition to try to get to the top of the list. But once the site hit a certain critical mass, this feature became less and less useful and became more and more negative. And eventually, we, we took it away from the site, which was, you know, we should have done it sooner, but it was the right decision. And um, Josh Porter actually wrote about this. If you're interested in the, the subject, I think he did a really good analysis of why this feature was good at the beginning, why once it started scaling, it became less and less useful, and why we made the decision to get rid of it. So. I kind of wonder if he had a mic in the office, because he, he gets it awfully accurate. So the, the third challenge that um, we've been facing, and this is kind of a, a general problem, and a, I shouldn't call it a problem, this is a general challenge we've had on social websites for you know forever, I guess, um, is allow for flexible participation. So allow for experts, allow for novices, allow for people with niche interests, allow for globalists. Um, allow for people who post three messages a day and have two friends at the same time as allowing for people who have, you know, 5,000 friends, like the Robert Scobles of this world. I don't know if you guys saw that graph earlier, but his Twitter graph is preposterous. Um, you know, building a website that works for all, across all of these users is an ongoing challenge, and I think no one's really cracked it yet. You know, Pounce, this is something we struggle with a lot, you know, Making it interesting for people who've only got two friends, but still can you know maintain the flow without being too fast for you know people like Kevin who've got you know sixteen thousand followers. So the challenge is to adapt to different data. This is why I guess what I was just talking about. Um, so this is kind of a, a separate issue, but one of the issues on social sites, which is an 
this is, I think, this is a really fun challenge, is that people enter all kinds of shit on your website. So if you have anywhere where people can enter anything, they'll enter just about anything you could imagine. And so as user interface designers, we have to adapt for that kind of stuff. And I actually use Ben Roslisberger. He's an American football player, quarterback, and he makes a, if you, I don't know how many of you guys are, you know, kind of graphic designers, but if, if you're building, you know, sites, he makes a great uh, example guy, because his full name's actually Benjamin Roethlisberger, and so he's got a really, really long last name, um, and a long first name as well, but there's lots of pictures of him online and stuff, and biography, so, you know, whenever I'm doing user profiles, I often use him as, as kind of my, my example guy, because I actually was just introduced this word um, recently, there's, uh, I guess, chemists use a term called unobtainium, which is uh, an element that doesn't exist. And so when they're working on an experiment, they're like, oh, I just wish I had unobtainium. You know, I could do such and such. And so in, in one scenario, unobtainium is, you know, infinitely strong and infinitely light. You know, in the other scenario, it's, you know, has, you know, infinitely frictionless or something. So I think as designers, we're really, really, really tempted to use unobtainium when we're building user interfaces. I, I know I'm guilty of it that, you know, I'll mock up something and I'll make it look just perfect. And, you know, the user entered just the right amount of data and the, their pictures all were, you know, perfectly aligned and looked great. But, of course, most people don't do that stuff. They're not as anal retentive as I am. And so what I've gotten more into the habit of doing is, is doing the Benjamin Roethlisberger, entering, you know, silly data, entering, you know, finding users who, you know, um, go to someone's MySpace profile, for instance, and copy their stuff into your new user profile because, you know, they've probably got bad taste and, you know, they wrote one line where you expect a paragraph, that kind of thing. It's, it's you know, much, much more useful to build realistic comms. For the flow issue, for dealing with how much content comes through someone's stream, I think Facebook is probably doing the best out of anybody. So, you know, something like Twitter, stuff like Pounce, we're, we're pretty basic about it in terms of, you know, just everything coming through there. You know, FriendFeed deals with the same issues. Um, but Facebook has this thing where they basically have an algorithm that tries to determine what you think is interesting and what you don't think is interesting. And they, they try to feed you the right stuff. It kind of breaks down that you're never sure if you send something out, like say um, in their new UI can you know, send an image or something, but I'm never sure if all of my friends receive that or not. You know, like, hey, you know, you talk to your friend Kevin, and it's like, hey, Kevin, did you see that image I posted yesterday? And it's kind of a crapshoot if he did or he didn't, right? And they kind of get around this a bit by, by having this really nice um, adjuster for the defaults. So if, if you always want to catch all of your friends' images, you can, you know, crank that feature up. But, you know, Creating something like a, a preferences pane like this is always a bit of a crutch. It's, you know, you, you weren't able to come up with a good enough default thing that people have to be able to adjust it. So I think this is something where, as designers, we're all going to be struggling with for a few years until we, you know, I, it's going to be different for every website. But I, th I just think it's kind of an open-ended challenge. Another thing for um, creating a site that adapts to m enough people is the idea of, of following trails, of following what people actually do. I think Jeremy Keith called it um, paving the cow paths. Um, so don't be afraid to, to watch what your users are doing and then adapt your website to you know, do you know, stuff that they, it turns out they, they think is really popular. Um, so on Pounds, for instance, we originally thought that events and messages and, uh, 
and files especially. We were pretty certain files was going to be the biggest type of thing people were going to send to each other. It turns out links is easily the biggest thing. And what people were doing was that they were sending videos to each other. So they'd send YouTube links. Well, that probably should have been obvious to us when we were building it, but we built it pretty quickly and wanted to get out there for this exact reason. We wanted to see how people actually use the system instead of how we assumed they'd use it. So, you know, it became pretty obvious to us that it was going to be really easy just to suck in the videos and show them right on the site. And so Leah and some friends came up with a standard called OEmbed. Um, instead of, you know, writing separate code for every video site, um, they came up with a nice standard. Now a whole bunch of websites like Flickr and um, Vimeo and uh, a ton of websites, even Hulu, which is this great American television site, have implemented it so we can you know, import the videos into the site. So that was you know, a lesson we got from our users. Hey, you really want to do this thing? Okay, we'll enable you to. Um, on, on Dig, that's been you know, a huge inspiration for us for adapting the comment system. This is something I could you know, do a two-hour lecture on, you know, how the comment system evolved to what it is today. But you know, huge parts of this, like we, we originally implemented threading because we saw people saying at so-and-so higher up in the in the comments. This is you know, years ago when, when Dig was still quite small. And so we said, oh, okay, you know, the site's big enough to warrant threading. And that's kind of an interesting lesson because I was looking at Pounds, which is, you know, has much smaller conversations because they're not about, they're, they don't, we don't have like the mob aspect of Dig. Everything's more about you and your friends. And you don't see them doing that. We actually had a good discussion with a bunch of you know, our, our most, uh, our favorite, you know, some of the, the biggest users of the site the other day, whether or not we should implement threaded comments on Pounce. And, you know, we all came to the conclusion that we shouldn't because people aren't, aren't already doing it through hacks. So, you know, it's great to let people get ahead of you on this stuff. And once they do, adapt to them and implement features. So, summing up a bit, um, if you can increase the benefit and lower the barrier to entry, you should be able to you know, have more and more people participating on your site. The more people who participate on your site, the more people they attract to participate in your site, which is you know, obviously a huge benefit. Um, if you give users a taste of what your site does, not only will they learn to do it, but they'll create even a small level of commitment, which will you know, significantly increase their chances of actually participating on the site in the future. I think that's a something we'll definitely be implementing on Dig. I'm, I'm not sure when, but um, you know, when we can. Um, expression, so allowing people to have user profiles and tying as many activities as you can to those user profiles. You know, it's not just, it's not just a, a thing you do. It's, it's really important for creating trust and, and building connections on the site. Um, focusing on tension points, doing stuff like, like satisfaction does, where they you know, saw that tension point, came up with a really novel solution to deal with it. Um, be able to adapt to volume frequency. I, I still think that's a, a big open-ended question, something that we'll, we'll be dealing with, you know, particularly as more and more people start joining social networks, you're dealing with more and more volume issues. It becomes very, very difficult. Um, pay the cow pass. Pay attention to what your community's doing, and you'll be able to see what kind of positive behaviors or what kind of negative behaviors are, they're going towards and be able to head them off at the path after they've already started. So, thanks very much. So I think I've left enough time for questions. I think we've got a, several minutes. So um, if anybody has questions, so I've, the slides are already up on SlideShare, so if, if you guys want to refer to them. So any questions? Um, ooh, 
Uh, it's a little bit of a sort of minor point in the bigger context of what you're talking about. But um, one thing I thought, when you dropped the most posted um, thing from Doug, because, you know, there's people with unassailable amounts of digging. Right. Um, did it occur to you to switch to, like, a monthly-based thing? Yes. Um, so we, we had toyed around with, we, we would consider doing that, and uh, I think it's possible we'll implement something similar to that in the future. But I think even more likely, and I, I guess I, I plan to go into this, I, I guess I forgot, is what I'd see is even more likely is to go towards something like an achievement system. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Xbox 360, their achievement Too system. Too familiar. Uh, it's, well, exactly. Everybody's familiar <laughs> with it because it's awesome, right? And so I'd actually mocked up. I, I have comps, and I actually asked our marketing person whether or not I could show them today, and she actually told me no because... Apparently, you know, she doesn't want to preempt any press if we ever implement this. Um, but the, if, if we gave points for like, you know, you did five digs, get five points, you buried, you know, you buried a story that ended up getting taken off the homepage, good for you, you know, you found something bad, you know, 10 points for you. But the key to building a system like that is basically make it a real challenge, make it hard, but let lots of people get to the top level. You know, make it kind of like World of Warcraft. You really got to invest yourself to get, you know, a, whatever level Paladin or whatever. I don't play Warcraft. But, um, but you know, make it difficult and a good challenge. And, you know, you don't want to finish the game too early. You know, keep adding levels on the top. But, you know, I think something like that could be really, really valuable to dig. I'm not sure when and if we'd ever build that. But I really hope we do at some point. Cool. Thanks. Anybody else have a question? Do you think progressive registration uh, would be the way forward, where we take only a small amount of data at start and gradually take more and more data until we collect everything we'd want from the user and give them some benefit for each level of detail that we get from them? Yeah, so he's asking if, there, if progressive registration is a, is a good way to go. Um, I'm not sure. I think that having you know, maybe two levels of, you, know, you can participate anonymously and then you know, register you know, and you, you actually get a full account. You know, we don't need a whole lot to give you a full account. So you know, we need your, you know, nickname. We need a password, and we need an email address. I think that's you know the the essentials. The the one thing I'm concerned about with this, and I've always been, we've talked about this for a while of coming up with a, anonymous digging on on the site um, in this way that you you can dig a bunch and then you know to actually save them and make them really count. You have to register an account. Is that you end up with these quasi account stages? Right? So I always found this a little weird. eBay does this, that you can watch an item as an anonymous person, but you can really watch it if you register an account. Because, you know, obviously if you switch a computer or if you lose your cookie, you lost your watch list. Um, so there's always this weird thing. I feel like I did something, but you didn't really. And so I'm, I'm worried about that with Dig. I, so I think having two levels is, is certainly good. But you could call it progressive if what we did is ask for the bare minimums, you had a real account, but then we did something like LinkedIn where you have, you know, hey, you're only 30% the way done your profile, keep filling it out, right? Something like that. So you could call that progressive, but I think they'd actually have an account, you know, a username and a password. So that's why I consider, like, you're registered, whether or not you've given any other information or, you know, started, you know, a social graph or anything. You guys uh, change the UI at Dig quite often in, a, in pretty minor ways. Not, you know, I'm sure they have a strong effect, but you make small changes quite frequently, I've noticed. Do you guys have a, like a, fit, a fixed release cycle with milestones, or do you, do you tend to just push out small changes and adjust the flow as you see fit? I'm mostly the latter. We're, we're mostly, you know, um, 
build out stuff you know when it's when it's done when it's ready we get it out there kind of thing dig's getting more and more formal about this stuff um the company's a lot you know when i started at dig there was i was the fourth person there i think and you know we used to build stuff and send it live you know in seconds kind of thing which was you know was fun and kind of reckless um but now things are a, a lot more structured than that so we don't move nearly as quickly as we did but um but in terms of release cycles, we have kind of a 30-day cycle now going, but that doesn't mean we necessarily release at that end of the 30 days. And small UI you know, changes and you know, other small changes get kind of um, slipstreamed in between that. So um, yeah, I, I definitely don't want to get into the situation where we can't make changes unless it's at that 60-day point or something. I think that'd be unfortunate because we get a lot of advantage by pushing out these small fixes, small iterations, testing them. You know, if it didn't didn't work, moving it back or you know moving in another direction. I, I don't want to end up where we're plotting too much and not able to make you know quick moves like that. What sort of uh, user testing do you do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Mark Trammell, actually, who's here with me, you might want to grab him if you really want to get an in-depth answer. He he's running our user testing at Dig, um, but we do. We're, we're getting better at it. Um, we're starting, we, we originally were doing lots of like quick and dirty user testing. So we'd have a feature, you know, two thirds, three quarters way done. We'd drag in a bunch of people, give them some pizza, and do task, we were do, largely doing task analysis. Um, we were also doing some focus group testing, particularly around like specific features. Um, but now we're getting into a, a better, uh, better situation where we're doing a focus group testing early in the project or you know, even at the outset of the project to f figure out what's, you know, what people an uh, are anticipating us to do. And then um, partway through, we'll do um, some user testing with uh, either paper prototypes or visual comps. And then near the end of the project, we'll do um, proper task-based analysis on, you know, on working prototypes. So this is for, you know, reasonably large features. So we don't test everything we put out, but we test a lot of things now. And it's, it's, Stupid useful. It's really, really useful. So, um, you know, we sometimes get so busy that it seems frustrating. Like, oh, you know, I don't think we have time to do user testing. And every time we've we've done that, but we've you know suddenly said, no, you know what? Let's set Friday aside and we'll just do at least some quick testing. We'll get six people in. Every time it's been worth it. We found you know an obvious problem that you know didn't seem obvious at the time. And and the great thing is, is these things are often really fucking easy to fix. So, you know, it's these, you know, move the button to the left kind of thing and, you know, avoid a, a big problem. And it's great, you know. It doesn't require a lot of effort and we get a ton of benefit out of it. I think that's it for time. Thank you very much. <laughs>